Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello everyone, welcome to Dan Snow's History. Big important anniversary episode this. The centenary of the truce in the Irish War of Independence. 100 years ago on the 24th of June, the British government reluctantly decided to propose peace talks with the leader of Sinn Féin, the Irish nationalist force that was fighting British crown forces in Ireland. David Lloyd George wrote to Eamon de Valera, the leader of Sinn Féin, as the chosen leader of the great majority in Southern Ireland. And he suggested a conference. It was thought that if de Valera accepted, it might get this terrible war finished. If he refused, it would legitimise a British escalation, a more draconian, aggressive response to getting the war done, getting Ireland pacified. De Valera agreed, and the two sides decided on a truce. It was signed on the 9th of July, 1921, and it came into effect on the 11th of July. Negotiations continued, and eventually, over the winter, 100 years ago, the 26 counties of what would become today the Republic of Ireland broke away from the United Kingdom, which then changed its name to become the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, because, of course, six counties in Ireland remained part of the Union. This is obviously a huge series of events and anniversaries, so we have been covering them in some detail on History Hit, as you will have heard. You can go back and listen to all the episodes about Ireland and the War of Independence there. Some really good episodes, particularly the one on the anniversary of the British troops opening fire in Croke Park in Dublin, the original Bloody Sunday. You can go to historyhit.tv and listen to all those. If you pay a small subscription, you get all these podcasts ad-free. You also get all the documentaries hundreds of hours of history documentaries, more going up all the time. So please head over to historyhit.tv and do that. In this podcast, talking about what was going on 100 years ago, the violence in Ireland, the end of the war in the South, and the beginnings of negotiations. We are talking to the great friend of history here, Finn Dwyer. He is a historian, he's an author and podcaster. He has got his phenomenal Irish history podcast. He's done spin-offs on the Great Famine. He's doing an Irish War of Independence spin-off as well at the moment. He's a brilliant podcaster, and it's always great to get him on this pod. Great to have him back. So please enjoy this special centenary episode with Finn Dwyer. Finn, great to have you back on the pod. Thanks very much for having me back, Dan. Great to be here. So we talked just over a year ago, I think, about, I guess we were clarifying the details, like, is this a war of independence? Is this a civil war within the United Kingdom? What did that United Kingdom mean? But now we're approaching the end of that war in 1921. What was going on now in the summer of 1921 on the ground in what would become the Republic of Ireland? I think for certainly a lot of people, they were approaching what was two years of warfare 
different type of warfare maybe than people had experienced, say, in France during World War One, that it had been a guerrilla warfare. At the same time, it was incredibly taxing on the population. People are suffering police raids quite a lot in certain counties where Republican sympathies have been strongest. There had been atrocities, for example, the city centre of Cork had been burned down, several towns around the country had also been burned. So I think on one level, you've got a population who's war-weary. At the same time, that conflict has intensified Certainly through late 1920, you have events like Bloody Sunday in Dublin, where the British Army and British authorities, Crown Forces, I suppose is a good way to put it, had opened fire in Crow Park. On the same day, the Republican movement had killed several key figures in the Royal Irish Constabulary in Dublin. And you have a situation where events like that have led to an intensification of the conflict. But in 1921 then, I think it's fair to say the Republican movement was on the back foot. You have a series of Developments from the Crown Forces side where certainly people like Neville McCready, who's the commander in chief in Ireland, while they are potentially looking at an end game, they are certainly outwardly at least adopting quite an aggressive approach. Lloyd George, the prime minister at the time, is still outwardly at least adopting an aggressive approach to the conflict. There had been attempts at mediation, I suppose you might say, and the idea of a truce. But I think if you're in Ireland, through early 1921, you're living in a situation of escalating violence and there's no evidence at all this is going to come to an end. And certainly for a lot of members of the IRA, when a truce is eventually called in July 1921, they're absolutely gobsmacked that this has happened. So I suppose it's a very difficult place to find yourself in if you're just a normal person and there's no end in sight, I think, for most people. Should we think about it as a kind of classic counterinsurgency that we get quite used to later in the 20th century? You talked to me last time about the Crown forces sort of pulling back to the big cities, abandoning rural outposts, uh, inland revenue not working, the kind of justice system breaking up. Like, what does it look like out in, say, West Cork or Mayo? Or like, what's going on on the ground? It varies massively from place to place. But if you go to a county like Tipperary, which had, I suppose, from one of the earliest points in the war, witnessed a very intense period, like what most people regard as the start of the war as an ambush at Salahad Beg in Tipperary. And in the following months and into years, essentially, as you touch on there, like what would have been the traditional law and order, the British authorities in Ireland, ceases to exist. So people won't go to the police if they've got any kind of an issue. They just won't go and deal with the police. The police are coming under increasing attack from the IRA in the county. Then in 1920, you get the establishment of Republican courts where the Republican movement start to set up what's essentially a parallel government. So you have this, I suppose, disintegration of one governing apparatus and the attempt of the Republican movement to replace that. Now, they're not always successful. It's a movement that's living on the run, essentially. It's got huge financial problems. It's trying to fight a war against the British Empire at this point, which there's no question is better armed, better resourced. But there is certainly a breakdown in law and order from a British perspective and government ceases to function. For example, in the summer of 1920, when they tried to hold the summer assizes across Ireland, where you'd expect the normal crimes to be heard, you know, quite serious crimes, they more or less collapse all across the island because one, people aren't going forward, bringing crimes to the authorities, people won't sit on juries, no one essentially wants to partake in them. And even you get the situation where solicitors I think a group in society where most people would accept are very much part of the status quo, they actually start using the Republican courts set up by the Republican movement 
because it's becoming in some parts of the country the de facto authority. So you touch on places like West Cork in parts of like the Bear Peninsula, the Republican movement are essentially the government of that area. And then in the first half of 1921, the violence reaches its peak, doesn't it? And the British government goes, again, it's scary how it's a forerunner, really, of many of the counterinsurgencies of the 20th century, but goes for massive internment, doesn't it? From late 1920, the British government are looking at the situation and kind of, I suppose, there's two options opening. Are they going to go to some sort of negotiated settlement? What would that entail? And then the alternative is this heavily militarised solution. Obviously, there's all sorts of complexities in Ireland in terms of Ulster. The six counties in Ulster that will become Northern Ireland are already on their way to forming what will become the Northern State. But in the 26 counties, you have these huge military operations. Now, it's a huge, it is obviously comparative to the War of Independence, but where thousands of troops are being used in these huge sweeps through particularly places like Cork, where they're trying to catch IRA flying columns. They come very close on a couple of occasions where they encircle Tom Barry, one of the most famous IRA commanders, his flying column is encircled at Cross Barry and they have to fight out a bit. And even though it's an essentially an escape on the part of the IRA, it becomes a huge victory in many ways or a propaganda victory. And that's where the war is in many ways being fought out. Militarily, there is no question the British Empire could have defeated the Irish Republican movement in 1921 if you just look at purely on a military level. But politically, they're being outmaneuvered by the Republican movement. They've got a huge groundswell of support, particularly in America, which is very significant. But also they have to factor in these quite substantial Irish communities in British cities who are obviously their brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers are back in Ireland. There's letters coming back and forth. And these people are also affected by it. So I think certainly Neville McCready, who I mentioned before, the commander in chief of the British army in Ireland, a man who's actually appointed because he understands politics compared to maybe some of the other generals who had been appointed to Ireland, didn't really get politics. McCready did. And he warns the British government going, you can't fight your way out of this with military means unless you're basically going to get into a pretty horrific war. And you're talking about the type of war that had been fought against the Boers in South Africa, where they would have to open up concentration camps and internment camps for huge numbers of the population. In Ireland in 1921, you'd be talking into 22, 23 that's not really feasible. Again, because of those connections to particularly America, the US government would have objected to this. But also, newspapers in England could come to Ireland. And that's a big feature of the War of Independence in Ireland. Obviously, it takes a long time for journalists to get from Manchester or London to South Africa and get stories back. They can come to Dublin on a day trip and they can go to somewhere like Balbriggan and see a town that's been burned by the Crown forces. And I think that is a very important feature. And also, the Republican movement are very good at operating on this political level. And they do outmaneuver the British government at several turns in terms of developing this international support. And what about support within Ireland in terms of people that were inclined to not take sides, be neutral, not care? Is it just the nature of insurgencies? They provoke massive overreaction by an imperial force or you know, whether it's the Americans of Vietnam, the Brits in Ireland. This old you know, hearts and minds question, which alienates the communities living in those places? For sure. I'm making a podcast series on the War of Independence at the moment. And I was just researching there. There's these things called witness statements that were collected in the 40s and the 50s that there are memories of people who fought in the war. A member of the 3rd Tipperary Brigade, a very famous IRA brigade, talked at the time 
that basically the British army or the British authorities, if they had focused on trying to invoke sympathy for the policemen that had been killed, that could have been a huge problem for the IRA. But what they tended to do was respond with overreaction, often brutality against an entire population, blaming the entire population, assuming that all Irish people are somehow sympathetic to the IRA, that this polarizes the situation and makes people essentially want independence because the current situation was becoming intolerable for many people. Obviously, and it's something that's very hard to factor in, is how many people want to sit on that fence. And you know, there's considerable numbers of people who, certainly if you're living in Ireland in 1920, you have no idea what the future holds. Obviously, in retrospect or in hindsight, it's obviously easy to go, oh, well, independence was going to follow. That wasn't, though, obvious in 1920, even in, as I said, the first half of 1921. And there's a lot of people who are factoring in a future where Ireland remains part of the British Empire. At the same time, you have to look at the Republican movement and go, are these people going to become the masters? So I think you have a lot of people sitting on that fence and naturally the way history is written and composed. But whatever about being written by the victors or the losers or whatever, the people who sit on the fence have a very, very quiet voice when history is written. Even though probably most of the people are those people, right? I hate making these dodgy parallels, but I'm so struck by the big attack in May 1921 in Dublin, where the IRA attempts to seize Dublin, to seize government organs within the capital. It's just so reminiscent of the Tet Offensive in Vietnam. And, and like the Tet, it's actually a tactical setback. The British government recapture over sites and take people prisoner and kill IRA soldiers. But again, is there a political element there which does that help to convince the British government? My God, they're operating within Dublin itself. We're just not going to win this. Yeah, I think there is that thing. First of all, someone being shot in a rural police station in a place that very few people have heard of is one thing. The Dublin Brigade of the IRA is storming the Customs House on the quay, a very famous building that dominates the city centre at the time. It's another matter entirely. It also is that thing you're bringing the war right to the heart of Dublin. I think a city at the time, I suppose outside of Belfast anyway, considered to be the most loyal and the heart of the British administration in Ireland. At the time, the IRA was really at the pin of its collar by the summer of 1921. But this is demonstrating an ability to fight on. How long more they could have fought on is something that historians debate over hugely because by that point the weapons are increasingly in short supply as is ammunition but also flying columns in rural Ireland are really on the run they're finding it much more difficult for them to seize the initiative which the IRA had done in 1919 and in 1920 in particular there has been a flip but the attack on the customs house I think kind of pushes back against that narrative. Yeah I find it so fascinating it's one of those insurgencies where everyone's convinced that they're losing at that point (laughs) It seems to me from talking to you and listening to your things that both the British government and the IRA are fairly convinced that they're not winning in the early summer of 1921. Military strategists within the British army, I think, probably identify a path to victory. Now, that's a path to victory where you suspend politics. So whether that's realistic, as I've outlined, that would have involved huge numbers of troops being flooded into Ireland What we now associate with things like the Black and Tans would have to have been in the halfpenny place compared to what they would have had to have done. You would be waging war on a population. And also there is debate within the British government about what to do. There's a liberal wing of the government that wants some sort of negotiated settlement. Within the Republican movement in Ireland, again, you have this division. 
you have people that are on the run. They're not blind to the situation. They had failed to import the large numbers of weapons they had wanted to. So like for them, that situation, you'd have to have been wondering where the future lies in that. So yet you certainly have a situation where the future is very uncertain on both sides and how this can end. I think both sides would have fought on. There's no doubt. And you can see that in the Irish civil war that follows it in that you've got a section of the IRA more than willing to fight on for what they believe the war is being fought over. I suppose a good point is that when the truce is called and it's called from politicians in Dublin and the word is sent out then to IRA commanders across the country, they are generally astounded by this news that they're getting. And if their later reflections, which are obviously written in hindsight, are happen to be believed, they weren't necessarily that happy about this. They believed that there was unfinished business. And in those last days before the truce is called, in the hot spots of the war, those attacks continue. But it's such an interesting example of the Clausewitzian idea of all Mao Tse Tung, you know, talking about war and politics and their relationship. Because, yeah, the British Empire could have kind of won some hideous, protracted Carthaginian counterinsurgency, but politically, there would be no coming back from that. Whether they lost Ireland in five, 10, or 50 years, it was over. British rule in Ireland had been delegitimized by this war, if it hadn't been already. In hindsight, it's very difficult to see how they could have come back, even in where the war had gotten to in that summer of 1921. It was different to other rebellions. There had been more violent rebellions in Irish history. You could argue the 1798 rebellion, for example, was far more violent. But the level of participation and passive participation, I suppose you could call it, where huge numbers of people in the population just won't use, for example, the police. Now, how do you win back that support? Now, on top of that, had there been an, an even bigger military campaign on behalf of the British authorities following into late 1921, into 1922, as you say, it's very difficult to see how you get out of that situation without making the situation worse. It's not like the 17th or 18th centuries, right? These quote-unquote pacified Irish people can have the vote. It doesn't work, right? It's incompatible with a sort of democracy to crush an entire people and then hope that they're going to be peacefully incorporated into a modern democracy. It does this not happen. For sure. And I think the global context is also important. The beginnings of Indian independence are also starting around this time. You also have the fact that the Irish-American emigrants, that generation that emigrated during and after the famine have now become a very important group in American society. That is very, very important because by 1921, America has essentially arrived in the world stage through the course of the First World War. You've had Woodrow Wilson preside over the Paris peace talks or become you know, the power broker there. You can't afford to alienate those. Anyone in the world can't afford to alienate a power like the US but also, like, there was Irish Republican representatives all across Europe, in some countries in South America. They had contacts with Indian nationalists in India. But again, the most important one being that presence in the United States. But also even, they had to factor in the hundreds of thousands of Irish people living in British cities at the time. And there had been attacks in England, now they were very limited, but there had been attacks in England, probably one of the most famous events of the entire war in England, which was Eamon de Valera's escape from Lincoln Jail in 1919 as well. So the war wasn't removed from necessarily the corridors of power in London in the way that other wars relating to colonial and anti-imperial insurgencies had been. 
And as you say, the press coverage, also the king, a little bit like Louis Philippe in 1848, I guess it was. He's like, I don't want to shoot my way out of this, right? I'm not going to cling onto this throne over the corpses of Frenchmen. And it seems like the king, George V, was of a similar mind. Yeah, certainly he makes a very, very important speech in Ireland. He comes to Ireland in June to open the Belfast Parliament. Ireland had been partitioned in the summer of 1921. And there's supposedly going to be two home rule parliaments or essentially self-governing parliaments, one in Dublin and one in Belfast. Initially hoped that this would kind of kill off the independence movement. That hadn't happened. But the one in Dublin never opened because Republicans win the elections or no one really contests them in the 26 counties. The one in Belfast, though, does open and he does come to Belfast to open it and makes this speech where basically he puts out the peace feelers. Now, he's obviously already doing it on behalf of Lloyd George's government. And with this, we often think it starts in July 1921. There had been attempts since late 1920 to try and bring the war to at least a truce. And a lot of this is, it's like any peace process. You have the key figures of Eamon de Valera, Michael Collins dancing around Lloyd George, and particularly then you've got people like Andrew Bonner Law, the hardline Tory element in the cabinet who seem to just want war at all costs or any cost. Whereas obviously Lloyd George, skilled politician that he is, is aware he's watching obviously within cabinet and wider society. Then in the summer of 1921, he flips and decides, okay, there's a huge debate exactly about what Irish politicians at the time agreed to and didn't agree to because within 12 months, there was a civil war being fought over these issues. So this has become quite controversial. But certainly, Eamon de Valera, the president of the Irish Republic, had arrived back from America in December 1920, and that allowed these talks to really begin. But then George V's arrival in Ireland in June 1920 allows, I suppose, the king to say it. It's taught at the time as well, the fact that the king said it and not Lloyd George made the Republican leaders in Ireland believe that it was being said more in earnest. Lloyd George had said a lot of things in the previous 10 years. He had gone back on his word several times, whereas the king saying it in public, to a degree, kind of bound them to a certain course of action. I think that was felt as being very important. You're listening to Dan Snow's History Hit, talking the Irish War of Independence and it coming to an end 100 years ago. More after this. Have you heard of the teenage werewolf prosecuted in 1603? Did you know that the 17th century British government relied heavily on female spies? And do you want to know about chin-chucking and thigh sex? Of course you do. I'm Susanna Lipscomb, and my new podcast, Not Just the Tudors, is a deep dive into what I like to think of as the long 16th century. We'll be talking about everything from Aztecs to witches, Velezquez to Shakespeare, Mughal India to the Mayflower. Not, in other words, just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Subscribe to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Don Wildman, and on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies, from stitching the star-spangled banner to striking gold in California, to shooting for the moon with Apollo, we've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.
Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you use a messaging app, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage, add unlimited photos and videos, and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. You mentioned there's bits from the British government and the king having a little bit of a role, perhaps, as well. Where do you think the impetus is coming on the British side to make peace? I mean, I find Lloyd George such a fascinating character because he's a guy who makes his name as a radical against the Boer War in South Africa, the kind of vicious pacification, counterinsurgency you see in Ireland in the early 1920s. He's now presiding over that effort. He's being advised by Jan Smuts, who famously was involved in the Boer War as well. But we like, like, where's that impetus coming from? Who decides within the British government and why that it's over? I suppose I'm bound to say it comes from events in Ireland. While the Republican movement, and I think this is an important part of it, if you're looking at the world from the perspective of a British government politician in 1920, this future is very uncertain. India, obviously, is far more important than Ireland in terms of resources, prestige within the empire, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. And that is now there's talk of an Indian independence movement. In terms of events in Ireland, though, militarily, the IRA has made the country ungovernable. They may not be able to drive out necessarily the British army through military conquest, but they certainly can make the country, as I say, ungovernable. So I think what it is, is essentially a government faced at that crossroads where are they willing to stand over who knows how long? How many years of brutal war? Also, the arrival actually of Jan Smuts in London is a very important event because Smuts is also trusted by Irish Republican leaders because of his history in having led the Boer fight against the British. He plays an important role. And then obviously he's trusted in Britain because he had played such a, an important role in the First World War and the War Cabinet. There's also the international conditions. I always go back to that. I do think it's very important had this happened at another time, 50 years earlier, at another time where Britain wasn't in such a position where it was so focused on international events, I think you could have had a more prolonged conflict because there were certainly British politicians who were, I would say, up for that. 
Of course, you're right. It's just Lloyd George, I guess, and Smuts accepting the reality of facts on the ground. This is kind of an unwinnable war, or if it is winnable, it's an unwinnable peace. It's so interesting as well, I guess you're right. It's a bit awkward having just fought a massive war fighting German Empire under Kaiser, fighting for Belgian independence, fighting for national self-determination, to suddenly find yourself engaged in a kind of crushing counterinsurgency, you know, and just feels out of keeping with the time that you're in. It doesn't work. Yeah, for sure, because the Irish Republican movement had made this point right back to 1916, the 1916 rebellion, this contradiction that Britain would go to war over Belgium, but would stand over the subjugation of Ireland was this contradiction. Now, they do try and bring that up at the Paris peace talks in 1919, and Britain warns the US and everybody else that this is an internal issue for the United Kingdom, and it's nobody's business to bring up the issue of Irish independence. At that point, Woodrow Wilson does go along with it, as do everybody else. The French aren't interested in Irish claims because they basically see the Irish Republicans in their view of events and I don't think this is in any way accurate, had sided with the Germans in the First World War because they'd taken arms from Germany. But I think while the Republican movement can't make that point in Paris, it hangs over the situation that you can't present yourself as the defender of democracy on one level and then go and do what would have been required in Ireland on another. And I think it also comes down to like the reality of the situation again. I'm what you might describe as a cynic when it comes to these things. And I do think that it was about power politics ultimately and the ability to fight that war. I just don't think it was there. And questionable how much the British population would also have wanted a war that would have seen hundreds of thousands of people being sent to Ireland, casualties. And also this has been fought against people who are very, very like people who live in British cities and are the relatives of people who live in British cities. That would have had an impact too and who they've been brought up to think of as fellow citizens, whatever the critique of the acts of union between Britain and Ireland. But these are British people who have fought alongside Irishmen in trenches and seen them as fellow citizens until until very recently, probably. So at the end of June 1921, 100 years ago, Lloyd George asks de Valera to come to talks. Things move along quite quickly. Just quickly talk to me the timeline of these couple of weeks in 1921. Yeah, you initially have Eamon de Valera and... Lloyd George, and there's letters exchanged. Which they're actually all online. You can read those letters online. And they basically thrash out parameters. De Valera comes back to Dublin. And this is where it gets very controversial in Ireland because what happens initially are purely, I suppose, preliminary discussions to see if serious negotiations could take place. That's agreed. And then those negotiations start in the autumn and winter of 1921. But Crucially, Eamon de Valera, the president of the Irish Republic, does not attend these. Instead, a negotiating team headed up by Michael Collins is sent to London. De Valera didn't want his fingerprints on that one. Many a person has ended up in a fight over this, I would say. <laughs> a lot of people would say that Eamon de Valera had a very good sense about what way these negotiations would go. He had got the measure, I suppose, of Lloyd George and that he knew ultimately when push came to shove, that Ireland would be partitioned and that it would fall short of a republic, which would prove controversial in Ireland. Collins goes to London with other Republican leaders. They negotiate a treaty. It's negotiated under the threat of war, obviously, because if these negotiations break down, there would be a resumption of war and that does hang over it. They agree it, 
But when it comes back to Dublin, very crucially, Eamon de Valera says, that is not what you went there to negotiate for. That's not what I'm going to stand up for. And it goes before the Republican Parliament in Dublin, the Doyle. When it's passed, Eamon de Valera walks out. And this is the start of the civil war. That is one interpretation of it. I think it's a much more complex story, though, because contrary to like Neil Jordan's film of Michael Collins, it's a much more complex story. For example, when the IRA, the army that has fought the War of Independence, meet in March 1922 to discuss it, they overwhelmingly reject the treaty. So I think sometimes it can be reduced down to small numbers of people sitting in smoke-filled rooms as to why Ireland ended up in a civil war, and that's not the case either. Eamon de Valera defends his position in part by saying, as a president, he shouldn't go because it's a negotiating team as he's the president of the Republic. It does beg the question, though. And certainly in London, they face a very skilled negotiating team. Winston Churchill is one of those on the team, and obviously Lloyd George himself is at times present. But I suppose you move from the truce right through to the treaty within like five, six months. What's interesting is actually on the ground in Ireland, while you have a truce, Ireland remains very tense in certain communities. And there's also a bit of a breakdown in law and order. So I'm from a town called Castlecomer where there was coal mines. Strikes break out in that town, like for example, in late 1921, while this truce is on, because who is the authority in the country at the time? Is it the IRA or is it the British authorities, which seem like they're on the way out of the country? But the truce, is it fair to say it's the end of the fighting? Was it held? Did British troops return to their barracks? Yeah, like I suppose the point that I'm making is more that tensions remain and you do get tensions over military outposts and who's going to occupy them and things like that. But overall, the truce does hold in the 26 counties. However, the situation in Belfast, and I suppose we haven't really touched on that, but Belfast has actually become the most violent place in Ireland during the war. The war in Belfast is different to what it is in the rest of Ireland. It's heavily influenced by sectarianism. Catholics, for example, have been driven out of the shipyards the major employers in the city in 1920. And the truce in 1921, it doesn't really last very long. It doesn't hold in Belfast and sectarian attacks continue. Many people would say that the War of Independence as such continues on in the north until 1922, before you kind of get a calming of the situation there. And it's a very different type of conflict there, though, where you have quite extreme violence between Catholic and Protestant communities. It shouldn't just be reduced down to sectarianism. But obviously, that's a huge fault line, particularly in Belfast. But the highest number of casualties during the entire war happened in Belfast, far more than, say, Dublin or Cork, which are often certainly more famous in terms of histories that are written in Ireland today. Belfast is often kind of forgotten. I suppose maybe in part because the legacy of that aspect of the conflict is still not resolved today. So I think that makes it maybe that one that's more difficult to deal with. Completely agree there. Uh, and then we get the passing of the treaty through the British Parliament, which means that the beginning of 1922 is, I think it's a question that 99.9% of, of UK citizens would not get, which is, what is the date of the foundation of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland? It's a very new country, in fact. <laughs> like all these Brits like to walk around talking about how old it is. It's only 100 years old next year. For sure. I suppose it is that thing that it's the exit of one part of it. It is that thing that Great Britain and Northern Ireland, people often wonder about that status. I even meet people who would come over today, people from Britain who often think that 
the 26 counties is still somehow in the United Kingdom and it can be quite a difficult conversation trying to really? explain that. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's not ah. uncommon. It's not uncommon for people to think that it is a devolved government like Scotland or something like that. No, my God. Cheapest creepers. What day is celebrated or is it a difficult celebration or commemoration? Like it is such a messy process and in a way an incomplete process. But what day will be marked as the 100th anniversary of the birth of the Republic? The whole commemoration of the War of Independence, I suppose, has been one that a lot of people anticipated a lot of tension around, just because there's certainly Sinn Féin has become the most popular party in the 26 counties in the last couple of months. And they obviously have a very different interpretation maybe than, say, a party like Fine Gael, who have a very different interpretation of these events. A lot of people predicted quite uncomfortable, I suppose, commemorations as to these interpretations. Now, COVID has obviously taken the mass participation out of these events. There's not been these huge parades or anything like that. I think still in Ireland, what will be remembered is the Easter Rising of 1916, even though obviously that is defeated. I think that is going to remain probably the most important day in the political calendar. If you talk about commemoration, the really difficult one for Ireland is actually just yet to come. And that's the Civil War because the War of Independence almost immediately leads to the Civil War within six months of the former end of the War of Independence, I suppose, you have the Civil War. And that's a much, much more difficult thing to discuss because, as I mentioned, you have two parties, Sinn Féin and Fine Gael, who were on opposing sides and have radically different interpretations of it. And then even Fianna Fáil, the third party in Ireland, would have been against the treaty. Sinn Féin obviously would have an interpretation of history against the treaty. Fine Gael would have been for the treaty. And I was actually talking to someone about this recently, and I think there'll be a lot of attempts not to really have major commemorations. There'll be academic conferences, no doubt, things like that. But whether that's really publicly celebrated, and you know, that is because the Irish Free State, and it's an uncomfortable part of our history, the Irish Free State, with the government of what is now the Republic of Ireland, within like two years or a year and a half of being founded, was committing war crimes in Kerry against the Republican movement. And the Republican movement committed atrocities back. And that's a very difficult, hard conversation to have following on from we've celebrated the revolutionary period where Ireland made great strides forward, for example, electing one of the first women to parliament, having the first woman who's a cabinet minister and Countess Markovic. But and I think it's the same in all countries, talking about the darker aspects of your history and the more polarizing aspects of your history is very difficult. It is. There isn't much clean cuts. Uh, well, in fact, maybe we should say that in countries where there are clean cuts, national days and celebrations, then there's something a bit fishy going on. I think that's definitely true. I don't think there's a universal interpretation of history. If there is one, you should be worried. <laughs> and yeah, exactly. And actually in Australia, Canada... USA, which are three countries I'm quite familiar with, those days are becoming ever more contested. So maybe Britain and Ireland, we're actually foreigners here. Right? <laughs> Everyone joined us in sort of ambiguous commemorations of the past. Finn, man, thanks so much for doing that. Uh, tell everyone about your extraordinary, it's a monster, your podcast project for this big anniversary. I've been doing a podcast series on the War of Independence. So if you know nothing about the Irish War of Independence, it's a great place to jump in. Each episode focuses on the lives of different people involved in the war, whether it's been people in the IRA, people who would have been from the Irish Unionist community. Hopefully it's an accessible history. The idea is that if you know nothing about Irish history, it's a good place to start. And you can find it at irishhistorypodcast.ie or irishhistorypodcast on iTunes or whatever. 
it's a good place to jump in. I think anyway, but I suppose I'm bound to say that. <laughs> well, I'm not bound to say it and I agree totally. It's brilliant. And so thank you very much for doing that. And thank you for coming back on the pub, man. See you soon. Thanks very much, Dan. I appreciate it. I feel we had the history on our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished. Thanks, folks. You've met in the other episode. Congratulations. Well done, you. I hope you're not fast asleep. If you did fancy supporting everything we do here at History Hit, we'd love it if you would go and wherever you get these pods, give it a little rating, five stars or its equivalent. A review would be great. Thank you very much indeed. That really does make a huge difference. It's one of the funny things the algorithm loves to take into account. So please don't ever do that. It can seem like a small thing, but actually it's kind of a big deal for us. So I really appreciate it. See you next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.